This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Welcome to another episode of the Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. This year's Nobel Prize in Economics was awarded to Professor Claudia Golden for having advanced our understanding of women's labor market outcomes. Professor Golden's work has looked at women's participation in the labor force, changes across decades, and the gender gap in earnings that continues to exist even today. In fact, the 2023 Global Gender Gap Report pegged the gap score at 68.4% and said it would take 131 years to equalize earnings between men and women at the current rate of progress. But how does India fare in all of this? A State of Working India 2023 report brought out by the Azim Premji University, reveals that some of Professor Golden's findings about women in the workforce may apply in India as well. The double burden of household work and a job continues to affect women, gender norms play a significant role, and the COVID-19 pandemic had a massive impact on women in the workforce. We discussed some of the report's findings with Rosa Ibrahim, Assistant Professor, School of Arts and Sciences, Azim Premji University. Good morning and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast Professor Rosa Ibrahim. Thank you. It's great to be here. Professor um Claudia Golden who recently won the Economics Nobel Prize established a U-shaped relationship between women's employment and economic growth. Could you talk to us about what this is and how it applies to women employees in India? Yeah. So the U-shaped relationship is something that lays out um what is the expected relationship between women's employment rate and economic growth um and so what it says is that when countries are at their initial stages of development uh, typically that's characterized by high employment of women and that is because there's a um a high share of agriculture contributing to the economy and the kind of jobs uh, that are available at that time are more conducive for women to work Now as the economy grows what happens is that the agricultural sector tends to shrink which is the process of structural change that um we see across economies across um, across the world and as the agricultural sector uh, sector shrinks what happens uh, one of the consequences of this is that women are either pushed out or they exit the workforce um so they're pushed out in the sense that you know mechanization happens and certain kinds of jobs are no longer available for women but at the same time there's also um, the choice to withdraw from work also happening here and this is what is referred to as the income effect where what happens is that during this phase where um agri- men are exiting from agriculture and going into other sectors household incomes also increase and as a result women no longer really have to contribute to family budgets and they have a choice to withdraw so that explains your downward part of the u and then it reaches a sort of a plateau and it after a certain stage of economic growth what the u shaped hypothesis will say is that women um women's participation in the labor market actually tends to pick up and this comes from the fact that um previously women who uh, the education enrollment rates for women would have increased and so these highly educated women are now entering into the labor market um b it's also that the white collar jobs and the jobs which are not really factory work but more conducive for women to work in are also increasingly available because of the expansion of the services sector 
Uh, alongside this is the fall in fertility rates also that um, allows women to participate. And specifically, Claudia's work also looks at how the introduction of the contraceptive pill really allowed women to balance their career and family as well. So that then you have this you know, increase in, uh, the youth, uh, in the women's participation, uh, which is where the upward part of the U that you see. Talk to us a little bit about how and whether this applies to India, ma'am. Yeah, so in India, it's quite interesting because to some extent, you can see uh, a U playing out. Um, so in India, we've seen this decline in women's labor force participation accompanying the economic growth process. So in a sense, your declining part of the U has uh, played out for India. Um, and this is coming again from similar reasons, agriculture contracting and the kind of jobs that women were traditionally engaged in are no longer available. Uh, but what you don't see is the upward part of the year, which is the, you know, as the services sector increases, uh, women should really come back into the workforce. We see less of that happening in the Indian context. Um, so in that sense, the kind of jobs that would bring women back into the labor force, your white collar jobs, have not really uh, come up or at least not adequately enough to both accommodate men as well as the um, female labor force. Um, so that is one. So in the sense that you can't see the upward part of the U really playing out in the Indian context. Um, and also just in terms of the levels. So, you know, if you compare India with other countries um, which have seen a similar U transformation, um, the given the level of economic growth that India is at, so given our per capita GDP, and you compare another country with similar levels of per capita GDP, like Vietnam, for instance, the female labor force participation rate is much lower in India than in uh, than in the in Vietnam, for instance. So at levels also, what we are finding is that not only is India not picking up in terms of women returning back, but just the general levels of women, given our economic growth um, levels that we are on, is also very low. So not only is the trend in the U not seen, but the U is also at a much lower level. Let's talk a little bit about the reasons for this, ma'am. Uh, we know that, and Professor Golden also in her work mentions the double burden of household or care work, as well as the jobs that impact women's participation in the labor force. Is this a primary reason in India? How does it play out in the urban parts of India? How does it play out in the rural parts of India? Yeah, so... Just to put Gold, uh, Professor Golden's work into context, it's quite interesting because in one of her more recent pieces called The Grand Gender Convergence, um, she actually makes the point that uh, one of the reasons why we are seeing this kind of stifled return of women um, and also the pay gap between men and women not closing is because um, women are not able to access jobs which are very high paying. Um, and she even makes the point that what we need is for ha to have jobs that are A, high pay, but B, also flexible and accommodative enough for, uh, accom uh, for uh, having women work in the labor market uh, while also taking care of household work. And so she makes this rather curious point that which says that, well, we don't necessarily need for the care burden to change or for men to partake in care work. Uh, but the onus is more on firms and enterprises to actually provide jobs that are more accommodating while also being well-paid. 
which I think is a, um, may not be very applicable in the Indian context because in Indian context, a the social context is very different. So now coming to why we are not seeing this upward U for India, one is like I said. The good jobs that should accommodate and that should drive women back have not come up adequately enough. So we are in a sort of crisis of jobs. We just have not created enough jobs to accommodate our huge workforce uh, or working age population. So when jobs are in short supply, the 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 logic is that the the jobs will first job preference will be given to men for jobs and the second preference for women. So women are in a sense being crowded out of the labor market. That's one, but then coming to the question about care, this is also an important point to the extent that women have to often do this juggling act of care and employment, and when employment is really not well paying, and when household incomes are also fairly high, women prefer not to do that balancing act and they withdraw. So this is for a certain income group of women who have the choice to withdraw. But actually, in India, if you look at the more low-income households, um, often women are actually engaging in this juggling act of doing both care work as well as also employment. So it's not like their care care work is keeping them out of employment. In many cases, they don't have a choice, but they have to continue remaining employed. So I'm not sure at the at the higher uh, class segments. Care work can certainly be a constraint, but amongst the lower income groups, less so. Tell us a little bit about uh, the findings from the State of Working India report, ma'am, about female employment rates having risen, but this is primarily due to a distress-led increase in self-employment. Correct? That's right. So this is also a slightly curious phenomenon. So what we saw during the pandemic, so in the months of the lockdown, and a few months subsequently. There was a huge fall in women's employment, um, and this was to be expected because women couldn't go out to work. There was an overall contraction in the economy, and men are able to typically access fallback employment like self-employment. They can take up some kind of intermediate jobs which women can't do. So the ability to kind of navigate the labor market in these kinds of shocks is far less limited. Or far more limited for men for women compared to men, so you do see the decline. But then in subsequent months and in the more recent years, what we are seeing is actually an increase in women's employment rate, which has been sustained. Now one would think, well, this is a great thing that we are seeing that employment rate, which had fallen to about twenty percent in two thousand seventeen, as of the most recent uh, labour force survey, employment rate has been at around thirty six percent. But I think we have to be really cautious in interpreting this as a necessarily good thing, and the reason I say this is two. So the first reason is if you look uh, at the kind of employment that women uh, are engaging in. Um, so what has really led the increase in employment rate? This has been led largely by self-employment. On its own, that's not a problem a problem at all. But what kind of self-employment? So there are certain kind of self-employment which we in the Labor statistics uh, literature we refer to as unpaid family work, which is basically a working in a family farm, or in the family business, or it could be a petty shop, um, and you're not explicitly getting paid a salary. You just contribute to that shop or business, 
and the profits are shared uh, amongst the family, but you're not explicitly paid for it. So this is the kind of work that women are increasingly engaged in. And this is what has, in, has really propelled the increase in employment rate. So this is a problem because it's not necessarily a wage work. It's not necessarily the best kind of jobs that women can be in, which points towards the fact that this is potentially a distress-led employment and women are feeling the pinch in the household budget. They need to contribute to family incomes. Uh, food prices have increased. Inflation has gone up. Uh, earnings for the other for the male members have not kept pace with that. So they are sort of, in a sense, being forced to partake in whatever capacity. And in the and in this case, it's as unpaid family workers in in the business or farm of the household. So this is one reason why we must be cautious. The second reason is a more obvious um, uh, statistic, which is if you look at the earnings of self-employment. So as women have increased uh, their, I mean, have increased their presence in self-employment, alongside this is the trend that the average earnings of self-employment has not increased. Rather, it has kind of stagnated. So what you're seeing is that there are more and more people in self-employment and the earnings has kind of had to be shared amongst more people. So even now, uh, the average earnings of a self-employed person is only 80% of what it used to be pre-pandemic. So two of these things combined together points towards this increase in WPR for uh, employment rate for women as being something that has come out of distress. And this is not an unusual phenomenon. Even between 1999 and 2004, which was a year when we actually saw a huge increase in women's participation rate, um, this was actually also a drought year. And this was also an, an increase in participation led primarily by self-employment. So sometimes women's participation is, is coming in as a distressed response and it tends to be counter-cyclical. And so that's why we must be more cautious and heralding this thing as a positive outcome. Talk to us a little bit about one of the other findings of the report, which was the link between working mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law. What drives this connection? And do we have any figures for the number of older women in the labor force in India? Yeah. So the um, we wanted to explore how sort of, you know, we all know that norms, social norms have a huge role to play in women's employment rate. One of these norms is mediated through the household. So intra-household dynamics really have a lot to say in whether women can work or not. So one of these dynamics that we wanted to explore was to say, well, does it matter the kind of household that you live in? Um, so we distinguished between three broad type of households. One was your standard nuclear household. So the woman lives potentially with her husband or uh, and that's it. She doesn't really live with an in-law. She could have her children also living with her. Then you have another kind of household where she lives with her mother-in-law and that mother-in-law is not employed. And then the third kind of household is that she's living with her mother-in-law, but the mother-in-law is employed. Now, across these households, you could compare what is the employment rate of women or how does the presence of the mother-in-law and the employment of the mother-in-law affect the woman herself? So in a sense, the daughter-in-law. And it was interesting because what we found was that now compared to a woman in a nuclear household, 
if this woman in a joint household was living in a household where the mother-in-law was present but the mother-in-law herself was not employed then this woman was highly unlikely to be employed herself um and on the other hand if she was living in a household where the mother-in-law was present and employed then this was also likely to be the case that the woman herself was also likely to be employed now there's many channels that you could think of that explains this so one is when the mother-in-law is present one can argue that there is a potential caretaker there's somebody who could take care of the household of the children and so this in a sense allows women the possibility and the option to go out and work and and be employed but the other way uh, and the sort of counter to this is that the presence of a mother-in-law could mean that you know you're living in a joint family you're subject to more norms your decisions are often not made by you or just by between you and your husband but rather there's a larger household that comes into play and so norms can be far more constraining in this kind of a setup so what we are finding is that when the mother in law is present it it does seem like the norms do come into play but the moment the mother in law is also employed then these norms are are kind of loosened um and in a sense allows or enables a woman also to be employed but of course there's another um, factor at play which is that the households where the mother in law are employed could also be households that are typically poorer or maybe in agricultural households and women have to work and so there too it is likely that you know you're highly likely to also find daughter in law is also employed so it's not to suggest that there's a a causal relationship you know the mother in law's employment affects women's uh, the daughter in law's employment but rather there seems to be a direction in which these two move together or they move away from each other uh, but not to suggest that one causes the other but it was a interesting insight into how women's employment is often not really mediated by herself but really moves in tandem with a lot of household dynamics talk to us a little bit about older women in the economy in india yeah so actually we haven't done a lot of work on it but there's some based on again with the state of working india two kind of evidences that we can say is that uh in more recent years what we are finding is a far younger workforce in the indian um uh labor force for women, amongst women so older women are less and less likely to be employed but the other thing that we also see is that you know if you compare across generations of women what we are finding is that if you go if you look at the oldest or the you know the most senior generation so women who were born say in 1950s or 1960s they are likely to spend a longer time in the labor market uh, they going to their entire life cycle in the labor market is much longer whereas the more recent generation of women are actually entering the labor market um later because they are more and more of them are education they spending longer in education but they are also withdrawing earlier um which again is pointing towards the fact that you know a career path in the labor market is less and less of an option for a number of women i mean it could be a, a less and less of a choice or less and less of an option we don't have enough to remark one way or the other uh but just in terms of life life cycle dynamics things have kind of shifted across generations of women uh 
but broadly, we can say that amongst older women, they are less likely to work um, currently uh, compared to younger. And so our workforce now is a slightly younger female workforce compared to earlier. We spoke a little earlier about uh, the pay discrimination issue. Talk to us about how this uh, how this plays out in India and uh, whether we are closer to sort of bridging that gap. Yeah, so um, in India, there's, there's good news and there's bad news on the pay discrimination front. So the good news is that over time, uh, especially in terms of the earnings gap between women and men for salaried work, uh, we've seen this earnings gap in a sense closing. So previously... Um, Women used to earn about 70% of what men earn. Um, but by 2021-2022, women are earning about close to 80% of what men earn. So there's still a gap, but it's narrowing. This is great news and it's similar trends being observed in other countries as well. Now, the bad news is that, well, what is causing this gap? So one obvious response to this is, well, because women are less educated, maybe because women have fewer skills, um, that's why they're earning less than men. So there are um, techniques by which we can discern how much of this earnings gap is because the pool of women who are working are of lesser um, lesser uh, endowed in terms of skill and education, or is it actually because given for a given level of education and skill women are actually earning less than what they should be earning had they been paid like men right so that's kind of like your discrimination component so you can uh, there is a technique to kind of say well how much of it is because women are of in a in a very crude way to say in of poorer quality because they have less education and how much of it is actually potentially discrimination against them now what's happening is that because more and more women are educated, the um, the explained component, which is to say that, well, women are being paid less because they are not as educated, that doesn't hold anymore. Women are as educated. And so the unexplained component, which is the discrimination component, has become an increasingly dominant reason behind the earnings gap. So this also means that it's not just about allowing women to access more education because even what we're finding is even with as much education as men, women are still earning less than what men should earn. So this says that, you know, there's a little bit of a black box or some kind of discriminatory component happening where equal, equally capable women are being paid far less than men. So this points towards really more focused policy that can address this kind of gap. Now, bringing back, uh, you know, because we started with Golden, I can bring, I want to bring Golden back because Golden's argument for this kind of earnings gap that was seen in the US context was that um, she made the point that women were not able to access jobs which were very high paying but had a huge demand on women's time. Right? And she used this word called greedy jobs to say there are certain jobs that require to be on call maybe 24-7 that require to meet clients face-to-face. -face. The benefit of these jobs is that they have very high pay. So every additional hour you spend in that job 
pays far, far more than, you know, any other job. And because of, and what happens is because of this very nature of these jobs, women are often excluded from accessing those kinds of jobs uh, since they have household responsibilities and other burdens of care. So that and her then argument to, was to say that, you know, job enterprises need to allow for these flexible jobs to also be made available to women. Now, in the Indian context, I'm not sure how much of this is a is really playing out. That is it that our jobs are indeed greedy and um, jobs that are extremely high paying are the ones that are less and less accessible accessible for women, and that's why the earnings gap uh, persists. Um, because if you see in if you look at highly paid men and highly paid women you know so women and men who are at the top of salaried work that's actually where the earnings gap closes um so they are very close to each other in terms of earnings so if you are right at the top you are being paid as much as a, what a man would what you don't see as a closing is in women in self employment so when women are doing businesses and entrepreneurial activities that's when you see a huge pay, pay gap. So, and this comes from the fact that these kind of women who are in self-employment or anybody in self-employment typically has to engage with a, a, a number of markets, right? You have to, as a business person, as an entrepreneur, you have to interact with hiring. So you have to interact with the labor market. You have to interact with an input market. When you have to buy your inputs, you have to buy interact with a credit market. It could be your money lender. It could be your banks. And in each of these markets, there's a potential for discrimination that women face compared to men. So the accumulation of all of this is that in entrepreneurship and business, that's where there's a huge earnings gap, which is really not closed in the Indian context. So I'm not sure if the kind of greedy jobs, uh, it, it, it might hold for a very high income class of women, uh, but at the lower rent, the earnings gap really persists because of the um, inability of self-employment really to address the kind of challenges that women have in that particular type of employment. Talk to us a little bit about the intersection of caste, community and uh, class in India when it comes to women accessing jobs and the availability of jobs for them. So when we look at the caste and employment interaction, it's quite interesting because um, what you see is that the highly marginalized castes like the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes are the groups where you'll see highest employment rates for women. And the forward castes in quotations or the general category castes are the ones where you'll have least employment rates or the lowest employment rates for women. So what this is saying is that the high employment rates that you see amongst the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes is really the fact that women in those groups have to be employed. They have to contribute to the family budget. And that's why you see them participating more. It's not really, in a sense, directly talking about empowerment and greater autonomy for these women. Uh, I'm not saying that that's not the case, but it, it's not a one-is-to-one relationship. Um, whereas for the higher income or less uh, or the more dominant communities, the low employment rates for women is coming from the fact that A, 
these women don't need to participate because household incomes are already quite high b they do not need to juggle their care burden uh, of child care and household work with employment so they have in a sense the luxury not to be employed uh, and c because these high income uh, households are also likely to have highly educated women they also uh, have you know very strong preferences in terms of what are the kinds they want, kinds of jobs that they want to do and typically those kinds of jobs uh, are very scarce in the indian economy so they tend to be more choosy in the top jobs they want to take up and they prefer not to take up jobs unless it really meets a very high income uh, threshold um so they again are very discerning in terms of what kinds of jobs they will participate in so there's this and i would say it's a caste and class interaction here um so at the lower caste you have uh, at the marginalized caste you have this uh higher employment rates which comes more out of necessity and interestingly what we find is that as household incomes increase right and so this is where the class component come, comes in women are less and less likely to be actually employed uh, as you move up uh, the household income spectrum so when you as you move along uh, when you move to more higher higher income households the women in those households are less likely to be employed but over a certain threshold women then start to come back in this is you know resonant of the u that we talk from a more um, you know india perspective it actually plays out if you look compare across households and again the other phenomenon that's interesting and that can be kind of brought in here is this hypothesis which was coined as the sanskritization hypothesis which is that for a lot of households and you know the social norm in india is really that when women are when their women are working it's a signal of lower standing because their their women have to bring in money to the household and they need to support the household so as household incomes increase um they kind of signal this increase in income by saying by withdrawing their women from work um and so this is they are trying to in a sense imitate higher income households and saying see now our women don't need to work so women not working is also a signal of higher social standing and then there's some threshold income beyond which you know women's education is very high they probably have access to very good jobs like government jobs and some kind of secure um and again you know your so called respectable jobs um which then allow, you know the households are, are also fine with women partaking in that jobs and so at a very high income class you see women again uh, coming back into the labor force and this often you know dominates over the uh, caste identity but at the lower end it is the class and the caste identity kind of interacting and uh, initially determining whether women work or do not work last question ma'am you told us a little earlier that compared to other developing economies india has one of the lowest rates of uh, women's participation in the labor force what structural and policy changes do we need in india to help increase this i think this is um can be broadly talked about in terms of sort of three big picture requirements one is the providing jobs and and enabling the creation of jobs that will be, bring women into the workforce enabling the creation of infrastructure that can facilitate women's movement into these jobs and the third is really 
um, providing or attacking or uh, or you know addressing norms that kind of keep women out of the labor force. So the first thing of jobs is you know like I mentioned before, when jobs are in short supply, women get rationed out of the labor market. And India's growth trajectory um, in the last few years has been one of jobless growth. So when there's very few jobs, it's not surprising that women are not being employed. So I think one big uh, requirement is to actually um, actively work towards job creation. And this not this is not about job creation only for women. I think it's about simulating certain sectors and industries in general, providing the conditions that can create enterprise setting up. And this is not just your single worker micro enterprises. I think small, medium and large enterprises is the future for India in general and particularly for women. So these are the kinds of the larger enterprises are the kinds of enterprises that tend to be more female dominated. There's a recent study which has shown this. So we need to focus on creating enabling enter- environment for enterprises to set up and also to grow and not remain as micro enterprises. So that's one uh, requirement. And also with the employer story, specifically for women, see right now the whole policy environment has been how do we bring women back? Okay, let's provide them uh, enabling environments. So let's mandate that employers provide creches and they provide um, a maternity leave and so on. A lot of these policies can actually keep women or actually can penalize women because for an employer then what happens is that Hiring a woman is seen as a cost because the moment they hire a woman and she is pregnant or she becomes pregnant, they now have to make provisions for creating all of this infrastructure or, or, or providing leave. So it becomes a cost for employers and they often, in a sense, are demoralized or they disincentivize from uh, hiring women. Right. So there has to be a way where the cost for this is not borne by the employer alone but rather from a more central centralized system where there's a pool of funds collected from employers as a whole, but not specific to hiring any given woman in their enterprise. So I think we need to think about a more decentralized mechanism that doesn't penalize every specific woman employee, uh, but rather a fund is created so that supports enterprises that can uh, enable women uh, women's return to the workplace. So that's from the job and enterprise creation perspective. The other one is the infrastructure perspective. So one thing that we found with the State of Working India report when we looked at, you know, population census and economic census data, we found that, you know, where public public infrastructure, especially public mobility infrastructure is strong and well used, those were the places where women were more likely to go outside and work. So the moment you have better transport uh, facilities, uh, buses, metros, you are in a sense facilitating women's movement out of the uh, home and into employment. Uh, and we're also finding that, you know, the for women, the main modes of getting to work, uh, they often don't, I mean, for them, the first mode is often by foot, but beyond a certain dis- uh, distance, for men, this mode of transport is motorized vehicles, right? So they use bikes, uh, they sometimes use cycles, or they even use private vehicles. Women, the moment beyond a certain distance, the primary mode is bus transportation. So I think it's important that you provide this facilitating infrastructure 
this doesn't this doesn't end at just providing free tickets for women on buses that's important uh, but also about providing the infrastructure of more buses uh, more options for them to just get to work and also the enabling infrastructure also means safe environments um, so safe public spaces for women which will also then bring me to the third point about loosening norms so i think the idea i, I think there's too much conversation uh, at least up until recently on how women need to educate more they need to skill themselves more they need to you know to use this big uh, the uh, the phrase of lean in they need to be more assertive this is important but i think on the other hand i think the conversation needs to turn back to the families to men uh, to take the role a to share the burden of care at home and it's not just it's not share really it's about its equal responsibilities and they need to take up that uh, care work uh, but also as employers and as colleagues i think it's also important for men to recognize what are potentially hostile practices and what are potentially toxic workplaces that they create so to have the legal infrastructure uh, at place to address these kind of um, situations uh, while also challenging norms that uh uh that kind of normalize these kind of workplaces and also homes i think this is of course it's a larger and longer um uh, response it, it's not going to be a simple advertisement campaign it requires educating educating children it's a generational change that has to happen but i think that's a conversation that needs to be had and needs to be acted on thank you so much for speaking to us today ma'am thank you In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.